Right, so good to be back with you guys uh, this morning. And if you guys have your Bibles, wouldn't mind opening up to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is the text that we'll be going through this morning. And as you guys are turning there, for some of you that maybe weren't here last night to kind of familiarize you a little bit, uh, with what it was I was doing in the SEAL teams. The last deployment I was involved in, we're out in Iraq and we're working with Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with those guys is to teach them how to fight their own fights. And we're going after guys that make suicide vests, roadside bombs, IEDs. And so we measure our success in terms of how can we sabotage them? How can we disrupt their plans? How can we advance and preserve freedom? One of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis, it's in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. But Christianity is the story about how our rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and now he's calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. That campaign of sabotage is overthrowing the plans of the enemy of our soul. And so one of the big takeaways I want all of you to really grasp today is there is this dichotomy between good and evil and God's patriots, as it were, that stand in the gap and advance a message of freedom. You can see that in warfare, God has Navy SEALs. In the church, he has his special forces. You all are God's special forces. Some of you are extra special, but... We are all God's special forces. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that you are a soldier for Christ. And you can see all throughout history how there has been this sort of evil that existed that wants to try and take away freedoms and patriots that stand in the gap. I imagine everyone here is pretty happy and proud to be an American. When you think about it, what's so special about being an American? That's the one that comes to the top of the list. Freedom right there. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, freedom. And then somewhere underneath that list would probably be something like, you know, Chick-fil-A and, you know. <laughs> but freedom. Well, when you reflect on that a little bit more, what's so special about freedom? And it's easy to forget sometimes that freedom is not just one of these built-in default positions in life. In fact, the way that America began, it started off with a tyrannical ruler a King George III that wanted to oppress people and dominate them financially, but you had brave men that stood in the gap and said things like, give me liberty or give me death. And it was through blood, sweat, tears, hard work, determination that freedom ultimately came and it was penned into history as what? It was a declaration of independence. We are no longer going to be a part of this oppression anymore. We want to be free. Well, in Exodus, we see the same thing. We have a tyrannical ruler, a king. And what does he want to do? He wants to oppress the people of God. But you have God's patriot, as it were, in Moses that delivered a message. It is a sort of declaration of independence. It's a let my people go message in a very similar way. There is a tyrannical ruler over this world as we speak right now. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He is the God of this age. Jesus referred to him as the ruler of this world. You know, Paul elsewhere talks about how he prowls about like a, a roaring lion, seek, or Peter, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And his desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. He is the ultimate terrorist. And so just like Navy SEALs, we're up against terrorists, guys that are suicide bombers. They measure their success in terms of how many people can I take down with me? Well, consider the enemy of our soul. This is a global war on terrorism against him. This is the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. And spoiler alert, I've read the back of the book. He's going down like a suicide bomber. 
but he's not content with going down all by himself. What does he want? He wants to take out as many people with him as he possibly can in the process. And so we need to make that personal. You know, that's our family, our coworkers, our friends that he wants to go after. But as mentioned, you are all God's special forces. And so you are here to sabotage his plans. And so just like the early patriots delivered a, a, a message of, of give me liberty or give me death, it's a declaration of independence. Just like Moses delivered a weaponized message of let my people go, we have a message of let my people go from this tyrannical ruler that has everyone in captivity and slavery to sin, and it is the gospel message. It's the, most, it's the greatest weapon we have to charge the kingdom of darkness with. And so that's sort of the 30,000 foot view of like really what I want you all to take away here. And then we're going to be getting into Exodus chapter 3 just to catch you all up on what is going on in Exodus up until this point. You know, we're a few chapters in here. Uh, well, we find ourselves in Egypt and Egypt is obviously the land of the Egyptians, but they didn't live there by themselves. They coexisted. And some of the people they coexisted with were the children of God. And everything was going great for a while. Why? Well, because of one of Israel's own, Joseph. You remember his story, the ultimate rags to riches story? I mean, talk about a kid that knows what it's like to grow up under rough circumstances. You know, domestic abuse at the hands of his own brothers. They wanted to kill him. Then they realized, you know, we can actually sell him. And he gets thrown into human trafficking, becomes a slave. But all the while, he remained faithful and steadfast before the Lord. Then he wrongfully gets thrown into prison for something he didn't even do. But then God does come through. And he goes from prison to where? He becomes prince. He becomes second in command over all of Egypt, second in command next to the very Pharaoh himself. And so everything was going great for a while there in Egypt because of one of Israel's own, Joseph. They're riding along on his coattails. But unfortunately, like a lot of good things, this thing wasn't going to last for too long. Eventually, Joseph died. We're informed that the king that knew Joseph, he died. And now we have a new king, Exodus 1.8, that says, he knew Joseph not. And he looked at the children of Israel and how they were flourishing and multiplying. And he's kind of like, ah, not on my watch. And so he wants to oppress them. He starts giving them backbreaking labor, making life difficult for them. But the more he turned the heat up on them, the more God favored them and blessed them. And so he decided to just go all out. He wants to kill all the Hebrew boys that are going to be born. Well, one would come to be born that we know as Moses. And Moses' mother did not have it in her heart to leave her child out there to be exposed to the elements and die. So, like any good mother, she hides her child as long as she can, and then she devises a plan. She realizes the princess would often go down to the river, and so if I put my baby boy in a basket amongst those tile reeds, perhaps her heartstrings would be tugged, perhaps she'll take him in and do something about it, and that's exactly what happened. Interestingly, Moses received his name not from his birth mother. We know him as Moses because of this Egyptian princess, and that name has meaning. It means to be drawn out of. And so she sees him amongst those, the muddy Nile reeds there, and she's drawing him out, naming him Moses, and suddenly he goes from these reeds to what? He becomes royalty. Everything's going great for Moses. He's living the life of prestige. He's there in the palace. But all the while, the children of Israel are still suffering under this tyrannical ruler. And so 40 years goes by, he decides he wants to do something for his own countrymen. In fact, we're informed in the New Testament that Moses thought his people would understand that God was going to use him to deliver them. And so he sees an Egyptian beating on one of his countrymen. He lays hands on the guy, takes it too far, winds up killing him. And so he made a big mistake. 
And what do we often do when we make a big mistake? Well, he tried to cover it up. And so he tried to cover him up in the desert, probably didn't take much more than a soft wind to expose, you know, the mistake that he had made. Another day goes by, sees his countrymen in a dispute with one another, and he wants to play mediator. He's trying to get in the middle of this. And so he's just like, boys, what's going on here? And they're looking at him. Like, who do you think you are? He's like, I'm Batman. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Didn't say that. But they say, who do you think you are? Who made you judge and print? What, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? Now, could you just imagine how that must have felt in that moment right there for Moses? Because he really did put his neck out there on the line for his own people. And basically what he received back from them, and you've probably been on the receiving end of this before, you really put yourself out there for somebody. And the response is, well, I didn't ask you to do that for me. And so it's just a dagger to the heart. And he realizes this information is going to get out. It is going to reach the Pharaoh. He's going to put a hit out on me. And that's exactly what happened. And so now Moses is on the run, way out into the desert. And that's where we find Moses in Exodus chapter 3, just reading in verse 1. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, reading from the New King James Version. It says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Forty years later out there in the desert. Now, can you just try and imagine the thoughts, the feelings as Moses is out there in the back of the desert of man, what a wasted life. Reflecting back on how good things used to be. But now look where I'm at way out here in the back of the desert, performing one of the most mundane, repetitious jobs, just following around a herd, a flock, and just looking back in that rearview mirror of time and thinking about how good things used to be. And maybe many of you this morning can find yourself in that place as well, looking back through the rearview mirror of time, thinking about how things used to be, how things used to be in the house, when all the family was together, how on fire you used to be, you know, but look at where you're at now. You're, you're just falling on, on, on dry lands, going through this dry season and just kind of rolling with the punches and thinking that all the good things were all in the past now and all you have is this sort of desert before you, going through this valley. Well, let me suggest to you that perhaps being in a sort of desert, wilderness, dry place is exactly where we need to be sometimes before God could take us to where he wants to, us to be. And I say that in terms of how he is going to use us. This desert place is a place of preparation. And it is not enjoyable, but it's a place of learning. And there's biblical precedent for this because look at all of the great men that God has used throughout history. They were always known as these men of the wilderness, the prophets like Elijah out there in the wilderness. Or, or we know how this plays out for Moses. Yeah, he's there in the, in the wilderness. We know that, hey, Moses, this is all going to work out. You're going to get to do that thing that God wanted you to do. He's going to use you to deliver the children of Israel from the Egyptians. Or think about the children of Israel themselves. Forty years they spent out there in the wilderness. Before what? Before they got to cross over that Jordan River into the land of milk and honey, that land of promise. Or John the Baptist. He was a man of the wilderness. Before what? He had the honor and the privilege to make straight the way of the Lord. And maybe you're thinking you have found yourself in this horrible, wretched, dry place because of some type of consequence. And I'll say maybe, could be, you know, the the Lord does discipline those that he loves. 
But maybe that's not how you found yourself here. I mean, look at Jesus. He was holy, pure, blameless, without sin. Where was he before his preaching ministry began? 40 days, 40 nights out there in the wilderness. Then his itinerant preaching ministry began. So maybe being in a sort of desert, dry, wilderness place is exactly where you need to be before God can take you and prepare you to where he wants you to be going. And so this is exactly what we find going on with Moses here. And I think there's this anonymous poem. It's anonymous. People ask me after, who said that? It's like, it's anonymous. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it really captures how God works in the life of a man or woman going through these difficult times. And so it goes like this. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, Watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While man's tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how God bends, but he never breaks when it's man's good that he undertakes. And now he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out, God knows what he is about. And so we are sometimes like that sculpture that's under the hammer and under the chisel. And it's all in God's hands and he's chipping away. And it hurts. Sometimes whole chunks are coming off and we want to cry out, why, Lord? But what we need to do is trust the master sculptor. He has an image in mind. God knows what he is about and we can trust him with that. Exodus chapter three, verse two. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Moses, in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses says, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Verse 4, one more time. What is the Lord observing? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, then what happened? That's when God spoke to him. Ah, now I have your attention, Moses. You know, maybe God couldn't have gotten Moses' attention the way that he has it now if he still was living in the palace. You know, Lewis also says this. He says that God whispers to us in our, in our pleasures. But how does pain and suffering operate? Sometimes pain and suffering operates as God's megaphone to rouse a deaf ear. This is how God gets our attention. And so Moses being out there, he observes this bush that burns, but it's not consumed. And that's when God speaks up to him. Now that I've got your attention and Moses is about to get the call that he always wanted. Jumping ahead to verse nine, God speaking to Moses. God speaking to Moses in verse nine here, he says, now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so Moses is finally getting the call that he always wanted. God is basically like, Moses, remember that thing you wanted to do? Well, let me tell you, you went about it at the wrong time. You went about it in the wrong way, but now I'm gonna use you. Moses, we're gonna make Israel great again. And what was Moses' response? Rather than just jumping right to it, rather than just being like, yeah, I'll be your patriot, I'll deliver that declaration of independence, Moses' response in verse 11, but Moses says to God, who am I? 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Got to remember where he's been at that stage of his life, 40 years out there in the desert. He's probably thinking, God, you're coming to me at the wrong time. You could have used me before because back then I had influence. I was in the palace. I had that prestige. I had the power. I ate with the king at the table. I used to have the blue check mark next to my name on the social media, but they've taken that all away. I've been shadow banned. I am nothing now. Lost all the followers. Moses has the wrong mentality with this whole who am I mentality because really the right question that he will get around to asking, it's not who am I. It's not who you are. It's not who am I. It's who is my God. Who is the one that is speaking to me here? Because that's where the divine power and authority is going to come from. But this whole who am I mentality, it's toxic. And it's, it's, it's all over the place. Even today, people think that, I mean, the, the world really plays off of it. Just people are victim of their circumstances. And there's just certain people out there that are lucky and other people that aren't so lucky. And certain people that are privileged. And you get to come from that pedigree over there. You get to get raised in that household. You went to that school. That's why you're successful. And the others over here, you know, they don't have so much. And they're just, this is the deck they've been dealt. They're just playing their hand. Rolling with the punches, that's a dangerous mentality to have. Yep, there are certain people that do get raised in households and maybe get a different start. But look, DNA doesn't determine your destiny. And that's just flat out true based off of SEAL training. You know, a lot of people think that Navy SEALs, wow, these guys are, are somebody, you know, something cut from another piece of cloth. You know, born and, and bred to be Navy SEALs, that they're, you're just born with it. You either have it or you don't. That's sort of like that mentality that it takes to make it through. That could be further from the truth. Our seal creed goes like this. One of the lines, it's the common man. Common man with uncommon desire to succeed. Not the uncommon man, not the extraordinary guy going on to accomplish extraordinary things. No, it is the ordinary. It is the common man, but what is different? It's an uncommon desire to succeed. That's good news. I remember the first day of training, 173 of us showed up in my class and the instructor's challenging us, how many of you are willing to die before you quit? That's like, you gotta have that kind of mantra, right? So we're pounding our chest going, ooh, yeah. He goes, great, this is what I want you to do. Take a mental picture of the guys around you. And so I'm kind of a class clown, I'm taking mental pictures. I'm going, chicken, chicken, chicken. <laughs> and so I'm looking at these four other guys. And he goes, chances are, if you're still standing here for graduation day, that means each of these guys you just took a mental picture of, they didn't make it. Do you really think you're the one? And I remember looking around the room and actually being very astonished because I'm thinking to myself, man, like where are these quitters going to come from? Because I know it's not going to be me. But at the same time, these guys say the same thing I say, and they say it in the same way, and it's very believable. In fact, we have already suffered under the hands of these instructors in some pre-seal training. We have suffered greatly, and nobody has quit. And so now I'm thinking, how far into the abyss of suffering do we have to go before some of these guys start falling off? And so looking around the room, realizing the majority of the room has got to go, I'm trying to pick off in my mind some of these guys that won't be around, and I can't pick anybody. In fact, my eyes fall on this one guy, he captured my attention, Barth. Well, he captured my attention in such a way to where I thought, there's one of the guys, not, not that's going to quit. There's one of the guys that's definitely going to be there for graduation day. Why? Because Barth was that guy that was born and bred to be a Navy SEAL. He was that guy that was blessed with some kind of special DNA that produced some kind of special muscle and stamina to where there's not a question over who's getting first place. We all know. 
In fact, the debate amongst the guys isn't like, who's getting first? We know it's Barth. It's like, okay, who's grabbing second, all right? Like, that's the challenge here. And so there's Barth. He's going to make it. And then I'm like, what am I doing? I'm supposed to be picking the guys that aren't going to make it in my mind, not that will. And I can't pick anybody out. But then my eyes fall on this other guy. How could I forget about Alex Gagne? Alex Gagne is the complete antithesis of Barth. This guy is like the ugly duckling of the class. He's always in the very back of the run. It's a place the instructors called the Goon Squad, where he would get a lot of extra unwanted special attention from these instructors. And so Gagne is one of these guys that... I don't think he played any sports growing up. He wasn't an athlete. He just rolled off the couch one day, unplugged the electronics, and decided he wanted to go become a Navy SEAL. And the thing was, is that him being there amongst us was almost like an insult. Like, how did this guy even get here to day one? It's, it's embarrassing that this guy's even here. Somehow he made it through the bare minimum requirements, but I'm thinking that's just about it. He's the locker room talk. Not only will that guy quit, Everyone's picking him out. That's the first guy that's going to quit. So I'm keeping an eye on him as an indicator. Well, by the time we get to Hell Week, the most difficult part of SEAL training, who's still there? Alex Gagne. And who's one of the guys that is amongst the first to quit during that portion of Hell Week? This guy, Barth, the stud of the class. Everybody pinned as that guy, he's going to make it. Well, what does that demonstrate? The truth of this principle, that it's the common man with uncommon desire to succeed. People that just rely on, well, this is just my position in life based off of DNA. No, DNA obviously doesn't determine your destiny. And that should be good news because that isn't uncontrollable. You can't control the times of your, the, well, like it says in Acts chapter 17, God has predetermined the times of our, our, our living, the boundaries that we would dwell in. But then there's this sort of, we have a free will as well. There's this expectation that we perhaps seek him and reach for him, though he's not far from any one of us. And so we have a will. We have a direction that we could place our desire, our heart, our minds towards. And so that makes it something that is open and accessible to everybody. And so you can't determine whether or not you got the DNA of a guy like Barth, but he quit. But you can determine whether or not you have the die before you quit mentality of a guy like Alex Gagne because he didn't just make it through Hell Week. The guy made it all the way through the pipeline. He was most likely to not make it. He made it and became a Navy SEAL. This is a biblical truth as well. It's like anything that the world grabs onto, it's like you can find it if it's true. You can find it. It's, it's teaching rooted back in the scriptures. This is just simply how God operates. Think about the others that he has used. We have this idea in our, in our heads of the type of person that God will use. And it's all about outward appearances. What does it say in 2 Samuel? God says, I don't see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance. But what does the Lord do? He looks at the heart. Where is your heart? Where is your desire? And a great example of that would be David. We know David as what? A man after God's own heart. Well, who was he? He was the runt of the litter. He was the locker room talk. He wasn't even in the lineup for consideration when they're looking for the king that will replace Saul. This is it? House of Jesse, these are all your boys? Well, we got David out there, but you know, yep, that's God's anointed. He had a heart after God's own heart. And what did God do with that little David that had the right kind of heart? He used him to do what? To take on the giant Goliath, and he chopped his head off. And so it's all over the scriptures. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to do what? Show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. Remember his heart, Moses' heart? We learn from Stephen in Acts, he thought that his people would understand that God was going to use him to deliver them. And so he had a heart that was in the right place. And so God is just kind of 
pressure testing him right now. Do I still got that guy here? Are you still my boy Moses? And so God's speaking to him. He's got that same guy. God's speaking to him here in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. God says, so, so he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses says to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses is finally getting around to asking the right question. Not who am I? Who is my God? In fact, can I get a little special revelation from you? When they ask about your name, what shall I say? You got to understand that God, the names for God were practically forgotten at that time. They spoke about God from this sort of third person stance. They talk about God as, you know, well, he's the God of our fathers. He's the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. They didn't have a proper name for God for whatever reason at that time. So Moses is asking for some special revelation here. Can I get a proper name? And what is the self-revealed name of God? He says, I am. That's what you'll tell him. Tell him, I am has sent me to you. Well, still to this day, even in Judaism, that is one of the most revered names for God. And we sing songs of worship about the great I am. And this is significant. Why? Well, we all know how this plays out. That I am sends Moses, and he delivers that weaponized message of let my people go. And there's power and authority in that message because of the I am that is behind it. Just like he says, I will certainly be with you. We all know how that plays out. But now on a very personal level, the last 10 minutes that we have together here, I want you to see how God is calling you to be his patriot, to go out and deliver a weaponized message. And it's the same I am that spoke to Moses right here. And how do we know that? Well, you go flipping over into the New Testament in John chapter 8, around verse 50 or so, and we find Jesus in a dispute with the Jews. And what are they doing? They're relying on pedigree. They're relying on DNA. They're going on and on about, oh, you know, our father Abraham, but who's your father? And they're trying to imply as though Jesus is illegitimate because they know Joseph isn't his father and Jesus is like, yeah, you want, to get, you want to know who I am then? All right, you want to get around to that. Well, before we touch that, an important little detail that we ought to point out is that during Jesus' day, Hebrew was practically a forgotten language. In fact, that was something that started several hundred years before Jesus was even walking the face of the earth. And so the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, but Hebrew is becoming this forgotten language, the, the Jews at that time decided we need to translate it into the language of the people, which was what? It was, it was Greek at that time. Thanks to guys like Alexander the Great, conquered Greece, and he wanted to adopt some of their influences, and one of the things he loved was their Koinia Greek. And so that became the lingua franca of the day. Greek was the language of the people. The Jews are forgetting how to speak Hebrew or read Hebrew, and so they decided we need to translate the Hebrew into the Greek. And so they came up with a translation called the Septuagint, which means the 70. They took 70 of their top premier Hebrew scholars translating accurately, meticulously from Hebrew into Greek. And that was the, the, the version of the Bible of the day back then during Jesus' day. Just like you might have a New King James Version or an ESV, the translation that was floating around back then was the Septuagint. In fact, the vast majority of the time, you may or may not know this, that you read the New Testament quoting something from the Old Testament, guess what? 
it's quoting the Septuagint version. That is important. Why? Well, because what would this I am name look like in, in Greek? It's pretty simple. Ego, ami. And so ego, ami, that was understood by the Jewish people as that revered name for God, reserved for God. Ego, ami has sent me to you. That's basically what they would be reading from Moses. That's important. Why? Remember John chapter eight, we find Jesus in this dispute with the Jews at that time. They're challenging him on his identity. And verse 57, then the Jews said to him, because Jesus says, hey, you want to talk about Abraham? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He was glad and saw it. They're thinking, this guy, he's not even 50 years old and he has seen Abraham, verse 57. Verse 58, Jesus says to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, ego, ami. It was not lost upon them what Jesus just said right there. Now, a moment ago, they thought that he was just trying to say that he's been around that long. And they're like, you're not even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? They're thinking, this guy's just crazy right now. But then when he takes this, this I am name, it was not lost upon them because look at their immediate response. What did they do? The immediate response was, verse 59, then they took up stones to throw at him. For what accusation? We see it in John chapter 10 because obviously he evaded them there. John chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus answers to them and says, look, many good works I performed in your sight. For which of these do you want to stone me? They wanted to stone him again. And they say, not for a good work, for you, being a man, make yourself to be God. And so they understood very clearly that this Jesus is ascribing to himself the divine name for God in that burning bush that commissioned Moses. And the thing was, is that they didn't believe that he really was God in Abad. They thought that that was blasphemy. This is an important one to use with Jehovah Witnesses. Because they don't believe that Jesus was God. They don't believe that Jesus ever claimed to be God. I got to do this at the door not too long ago where I had my boy. He's young. He was eating a bunch of candy. He's excited. Who's at the door now, you know? And, and, and I was literally going over this passage and thinking to myself, what a great passage to use with Jehovah Witnesses. I was in the hallway with it opened up to Exodus 3.14. And then I thought, I had a conscious thought, they have never been to my door here. And in previous places I've lived, they've been to the door. They have never been to the door where I live now. What a great passage to use with them. And I, I kid you not, that door is knocking. Da, da, da. And like 99 times out of 100, that's an Amazon package, right, that my wife ordered. <laughs> but just something in me was like, what if it's Jehovah Witnesses? And by that time, my son ate all this candy. I, I was trying to like let him do his thing so I could work on a message that I was getting ready to prepare and deliver, and uh, he's excited now. He wants to know who's at the door. So he's like a dog. I can't even open the door. He's just like, you know, trying to get through, trying to get through. And he had this thing he was doing for a little while in church that was really embarrassing. When I'd be holding him, some people, when they would walk up, they would say, you know, oh, you know, your son, what a cute little boy. And sometimes he would just look at people, and he'd hiss at them. He'd go, <laughs> But then I started to notice a little bit of a pattern and I thought, this kid might have the gift of discernment, you know, because it was the people that he would do it towards. I would think like, yes, there was something within my spirit about that person as well. Well, I'm trying to open the door. He's popping his head through. I hear them go, oh, what a cute little, what's my son do? I was like, he's got the gift. And so he goes running out. 
And so I wind up in this conversation with these JWs, and I decide I'm going to IM them. It's IM them time, right? And so I take them through Exodus 3.14, John 8.58. I show them the two. And typically you have the sort of like the protege, the little trainee, and then you've got like the mentor that's guiding them around. Well, the little protege was like going back and forth from Exodus 3.14, John 8.58, Exodus. And they go, I've never seen that before. And then the other one's like, well, looks like you got your hands full with your son. We'll leave you be. And... <laughs> I was like, no, you guys never come to my door. Let's talk. And they didn't want to talk. And so they said, we'll come back sometime. So I said, all right, let's arrange it because I'm not always home. And so I try and give them my number. And uh, I give them my number. And it doesn't look like they're taking it down. I'm like, did you get it? They go, yeah, we got it. I go, repeat it back to me. And they couldn't do it. <laughs> and so they had no intention of coming back. But the point is, is that Jesus, clearly, he claimed to be God. And here's the scary thing is that the JWs, they're in camp with the Pharisees. I don't know if that's the camp you want to be in because the JWs agree that Jesus is not God, just like the Pharisees thought Jesus is not God. That's why they wanted to crucify him. But let's remember now, this I am now we see is the son of God. This is the one that spoke to Moses and this is the one that speaks to you and I in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, the great commission. So just as Moses was commissioned to go Go and deliver this message. What does Jesus say? Go. Go into the world and make disciples. And the way that we make disciples, the way that we charge that kingdom of darkness is with the greatest weapon we have. It's the gospel message. It is a let my people go sort of message. I'll leave you with this maybe sort of final motivation from it. I mean, you have the motivation from the commander of the universe. He's commissioned us. He's given us this duty and this task. How about a call out from atheists? You guys might be familiar with who Penn Jillette is. He's a very famous Las Vegas magician, illusionist. He's been on TV. He was on that program, The Apprentice, when, when Donald Trump was on it. Uh, Penn and Teller, you know, the two of them are usually together. And so he's this famous magician out there, but he's also a very outspoken atheist. He doesn't believe in God, and he wants you to know he doesn't believe in God. And he likes to debate and argue over God's existence with Christians. Now, you would think an atheist would want you to just privatize it. Keep it to yourself separation of church and state. Just keep it in the household. Don't bring it out here into, you know, the drinking water. Well, this guy calls out Christians because he at least sees the logic behind it all. He at least has heard what Jesus has called his Christians to go out there and do. And so he made a, a video, very interesting, worth checking out on YouTube called Gift of a Bible, where a man had gifted him a Gideon's New Testament. And he wanted to talk about the impact that had on him just in terms of how that guy at least had the willingness to actually try and proselytize, try and evangelize, to do what his Lord told him to do. And so in this video, I transcribed some of it. Uh, this is what he says. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, he questions you. How much do you have to hate somebody? How much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? He says, I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you believe the truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I will tackle you. And he says, and this, speaking of the gospel, he says, and this is more important than that. That's from the mouth of an atheist. He's like, hey, Christian, I don't believe what you believe, but if you believe it, wow, 
how much do you have to hate somebody to believe this is true and not share that with them? Well, thank you for that, Pendulette. And like, really thank you, because you know what he gets, just gave us right there? He gave us a great tool, a great tool to use whenever you do want to share the gospel with somebody, because what is it that holds us back? I guess a little bit of it is coming off as socially awkward. You don't got to worry about them taking your head, not here. What do we have to worry about? Coming off socially awkward, maybe bringing up something that's a little taboo, coming off as a little unpopular. Should that be holding us back? No. But sometimes we're like, I don't know how to break into this conversation, or I don't know how to do this without them just turning on me all of a sudden and saying, like, who do you think you are? You know, Christian high and mighty, judgmental up there on your pedestal, and we don't want to come off like that. And so how can we kind of get into this conversation and defuse that bomb? Well, Penn just gave us the great tool to defuse that bomb. In what way? Well, he's a little bit of common ground. You can bring up Penn Gillette, Penn and Teller, to most people on the street, they know who he is. Even if they don't, you can bring up the fact that he's a very outspoken atheist and he put a very interesting video out there online. And he challenges Christians as atheists. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not share that with them? I'm telling you, the person across from you who is not a believer will see the logic in that and they will nod their head. They go, hmm. And then you go, and because I do not hate you, and because I love you or I care for you, would you please allow me to share some things with you? What are they going to argue with on that, right? And so there's your open door then to have that opportunity to share the gospel with that person. And that bomb is diffused. You've taken away this whole like you're judgmental or you're up on a pedestal or you're so prideful and arrogant and hypocritical. You're letting them know what your motive is right out the gate from the very beginning. And so thank you, Pendulette, for doing just that. And so we see how our freedoms are not free. We realize they are paid for in the currency of our soldiers' blood on the battlefield. That was the very beginning of our nation. Give me liberty or give me death. As John Adams says, your generation will never know how much it costs my generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you'll make good use of it. We see the illusions of it through the blood sacrifices that take place in the Old Testament. And behold, Jesus was what? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so that freedom was never free. It always came at the price of bloodshed. And there's life there in the blood. And now this same Jesus that commissioned Moses, we understand now, he commissioned him to go and deliver this weaponized message. He commissions you and I to go and do the same. Deliver a weaponized message, get out there, share the gospel, fulfill the great commission. That is our duty as Christians, as God's special forces. That is our task. And you don't want to be disobedient to it. I'll leave you with these words by C.T. Studd. He says, only one life. It will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Most people don't know the second half. He says, and when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life is burned out for thee. You know, in the end, we have a choice. You know, we could live for self. We could say, me, me, me. You know, or you could say, no, 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 it's not about me. I want to burn out for thee. And so we are the Lord's sled dogs, and we are here to give them a good run. Amen. This is Doug Ferris, and I'm blessed to be the pastor here at Underwood Baptist Church. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. It's our prayer that you'll do more than listen to the sermon or gather religious information. We want you to encounter God, and we pray that He will impact your life. If you'd like to contact us for any reason, please go to our website at underwoodbaptist.org 
All our contact information is there, and we look forward to hearing from you. I hope you are blessed by today's message.